Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to the continuing series in the second half of American history to podcast episode number 25. In podcast 24, we began looking at the impact of the onset of the Great Depression, which would retrospectively be known as the Great Depression. We looked at four significant aspects that brought the Great Depression on, actions that were to even take place during the 1920s, such as easy credit, overspeculation, overproduction, and unbalanced wealth and income. We also, and hopefully clarified, that it wasn't any just one day on the market. Rather, the market had a series of falls or even you could go so far as to say crashes throughout 1929, but the market always bounced back in the next day or two. But after the October crash, there was no recovery. So we looked at that, the way the world then sunk into the Great Depression, the job loss, the impact on labor negotiations and unions. We looked at the Great Dust Bowl as well, and also explored how President Herbert Hoover while shying away from government intervention, largely reacted the way most presidents did during times of economic turmoil. And that's where we ended the 24th podcast, was looking at the election of 1932, where the Democrats, to try to bring up a crippled economy, actually nominated somebody who was physically crippled, that, of course, being Franklin Roosevelt. So this is where we begin then with our podcast number 25. The election was one that Republicans were fairly confident that they were able to win. In a landslide like the prior elections through the 1920s, no, maybe not, but certainly easy to beat this New York governor by the name of Franklin Roosevelt. However, Franklin Roosevelt was able to not only win, but win in a landslide. However, we tend to look at Franklin Roosevelt and we the pictures that we have of him is this very confident politician with always looking dressed to the nines. However, and it's not to say that that wasn't true, but Franklin Roosevelt, the night that the in November of 1932, when the election results came in and it was confirmed that Franklin Roosevelt was indeed going to win, the 1932 presidential election and B, ironically enough, the 32nd president of the United States, that the family in the Hyde Park estate in New York looked around for him and couldn't find him. It was a very cold night and nobody thought to look outside. But his wife, Eleanor, while walking through the house, looked out through one of the back windows and saw Franklin Roosevelt, saw her husband in a wheelchair out on the patio. And she rushed down to him and says, my gosh, why are you out here in the cold? And she looked down on him and saw that his shirt was practically soaked through, and yet it wasn't raining or snowing. He was also trembling almost uncontrollably, sweating profusely also from the head. 
and around his neck. And he, she, Eleanor looked and said something to the effect of, my gosh, what's wrong? And he said, what's wrong? I've won the presidency and I have no idea what I'm going to do. Herbert Hoover essentially did everything right. What did the American people expect me to do? And she looked at her husband and said, well, that's what you are going to figure out because if anybody can do it, it's you. So this, again, contrasts this, this confident Roosevelt that we usually see in the pictures. And I don't share this anecdotal story in any way to knock him off his pedestal. But just to remind my listeners, just he was a human being. And he felt the way many presidents of the United States felt the moment they realized they won the election. Campaigning, claiming what you might do, is very different when you get the news that you did win. And now voters are looking at you to follow through on your promises. Franklin Roosevelt, however, largely did not wait for that opportunity to come to him. He sought it, even though it would be an extremely contentious transition of power. Herbert Hoover, the outgoing president, refused to greet Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, as was the custom when they arrived at the White House on the morning of the inauguration, March 4th, 1933. Herbert Hoover refused to extend any kind of well wishes to him. In the motorcade trip from the White House to the Capitol, Hoover refused to even acknowledge the president-elect or speak to him. It was a very, very contentious transition of power. However, once he came in, Franklin Roosevelt swept in with his New Deal legislation. And what we're going to take a look at here and discuss briefly are some of the aspects that Franklin Roosevelt attempted to try to bring the United States out of the Great Depression. But let me also say this. Please know that what we're going to do, speak, what we're going to address here None of these efforts alone or even collectively brought the United States out of the Great Depression. Sadly, what would bring America out of this beyond economic downturn was unfortunately going to be the Second World War. However, this again, Franklin and nobody else in the world knows or certainly even wishes that that kind of monstrosity type of war would take place. So Franklin Roosevelt, he begins by shaking up the banks and reorganize the existing banks. He, despite the fact that he himself wasn't exactly an endorser of the idea of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, he did eventually go along with it. And that's where where hopefully any of my listeners in America, when you walk in physically to your bank or you go on your bank's website, hopefully you will be able to see that golden sticker with the big black letters, FDIC. What that means, of course, is that your deposits are insured up to a quarter of a million dollars. Now, at this time, talk about the way things change. The FDIC only insured depositors up to $2,500. Yeah, a little bit more now than it was back then. But again, just know that if for whatever reason you have $150,000 collectively between a money market account, say a savings account and a checking account, and your XYZ bank goes belly up overnight, the federal government ensures that you have that dollar amount will eventually be given back to you. This is an insurance that we ourselves don't pay for, but the banks participate in. Please know again, it is not required that all banks participate, and some, believe it or not, don't. 
So you might want to look at the next time you're at your bank's website or you'll physically walk into your bank. If they're a member of it and paying profusely for that insurance, it is something that they advertise proudly, as they should. But also know that if you have that $150,000 and you find out that a long-lost relative died and left you a half a million dollars, you not only don't want to put that in your XYZ bank because you're already up to $150,000, but you want to divide that up between banks if you didn't want to invest that, which I would more than encourage you to do. But even if you wanted to park that money temporarily, you never want to have more than $250,000 or a quarter of a million dollars in any one bank. In terms of the stock market, looking at, again, the reasons why the market tanked that we discussed in episode 25, podcast episode 24, Franklin Roosevelt also shook up the stock market by creating what we know of today as the SEC. The SEC, or the Securities Exchange Commission, this was going to now make illegal the idea of what we call insider trading. Insider trading, again, for those not familiar with that, that's the idea where you have information coming from an inside source of a given corporation that is sharing information that is not available to the public. If you make a decision whether to invest or sell in an existing corporation based on what we call inside information that is not available to the public, you could then be liable or nailed by the SEC. If you don't believe me, just ask Martha Stewart, who was also nailed by the SEC for insider trading, as was her, her financial advisor, her broker. So it does, it is an organization with serious teeth in it, as it should have. And it was going after the people that were sneaking and trading inside information in order to pad their own pockets at the expense of the general public. Again, prior to 1933, this was legal. It is no longer anymore. So no surprise when the Republicans balked that Franklin Roosevelt, of all people, made the first Securities and Exchange Commissioner none other than the father of the future 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, or Joe Kennedy. Joseph Kennedy made a lot of money on insider trading, and that's why Franklin Roosevelt tapped him. Again, as the old saying goes, it is, it's the kid that looks behind the curtains to find their playmate when they're playing hide-and-go-seek. Why does the kid look behind the curtain? Because that's where he hides. And that's what Franklin Roosevelt knew, is that if anybody knew how to run out these inside traders and expose them, it was going to be none other than one of the greatest inside traders of the time, Joe Kennedy himself. There would also no longer be allowed to what we call building based on speculation. There would have to be from there on out a certain commitment of dollars and signatures of existing corporations before they could either expand or move into new territory. Homeowners were also, and farmers were allowed to refinance. There was a moratorium on foreclosures, again, for a time, but it would be a way, to, again, to keep homeowners inside their homes as they refinanced. In terms of the economy, the labor market, Franklin Roosevelt also had a genius idea along with his advisors of what became known as the Townsend Plan. And the Townsend Plan, simply put, is the idea of what we call the social security system. The idea was to take people over the age of 59 and force them into retirement. But wait a minute, where do they pay their bills? 
even if they have their houses paid off and all loans paid off, they still have the regular expenses. They still have taxes that they have to pay, et cetera. Because of that, the idea is that the retirees would receive a certain amount of money, a pay as percentage of their pay that they once enjoyed when they were working. Where does that money come from? The federal government? Not directly. It would come from the people that would replace that 59-year-old or older worker, and therefore everybody that is still working from the moment the Townsend plan went forward, they would have a percentage out of taken out of their paycheck, just as most Americans do today, for Social Security. The system worked well back when it was created in the 1930s, because for every one retiree, there were four younger people in the workforce. Today, when you hear about the Congress attempting to bring up the idea of the solvency of Social Security and the system, what do we do with that? It's going to go bankrupt. The reason being is because now that system or that ratio has flipped and there's largely one retire, where's one worker for every three to four retirees. Why? Because we're living longer, we have better health. And for a lot of those reasons, and the way the government has slowly worked their way around that is to continue to raise the retirement age higher and higher. But it initially started at 59, and as we know now, is in the mid-60s, 67 years old, destined to go up probably even before I would retire. It's the only one of the few ways that we're going to be able to try to continue to make the system work. But was the government stepping in and literally forcing corporate America to lay off their employees. In a way, it was. And that's the reason why this piece of legislation and countless others would eventually be tried by the United States Supreme Court and Franklin Roosevelt would be accused of economic or governmental overreach. There would also be a massive public works project through the National Recovery Act, also known as the NRA. That is not the National Rifle Association. That was the National Recovery Act. And the, the public works program was building projects throughout the United States by privately con contracted employees, however, hiring millions of people. And again, below the age of 59. Quick examples of this would be the Tennessee Valley Authority, which provided electricity to, a seven, uh, to over seven states in the region. He also, Franklin Roosevelt also established the Rural Electrification Administration to monitor these uh, projects. And one might ask, what's with all this focus on electricity? And to give you an idea that those two quick examples were major in and of itself, if you really want to get a picture of just how significant this commitment to electricity is, I would recommend you pause the podcast now, or if you quickly can open up another a browser and type in the Hoover Dam. That's H-O-O-V, as in Victor, E-R, dam. And look at the various Google images or whatever web browser you're using. Look at the images of that massive concrete structure. At one point, that was the largest con concrete structure on Earth. And all of that was built to generate electricity. The reason for the focus on electricity is that Franklin Roosevelt thought that as soon as America can pull out of this economic downturn, out of this Great Depression, truly, 
and we can run electricity to people's homes, you are creating future markets for appliances and other goods that would require electricity. In other words, it was employing people currently, but at the same time doing projects that would create future demand. And again, if there's no testament to how committed Franklin Roosevelt was to the spread of the application of electricity or the access to electricity, again, just look at that Hoover Dam. If you're looking at it as I speak, that is a structure that is as thick, not long, but as thick as two football fields laid end to end, using over 6.6 million tons of concrete. A four-foot sidewalk, a four-foot wide sidewalk going around the globe could be used just by the amount of concrete that they poured into that one area. Creating a structure like that, though, was the 1930s equivalent of trying to put a human being orbiting around the moon or even on it. Therefore, the Franklin Roosevelt administration tapped the primary engineer, a gentleman by the name of Frank Crow pointed out the location that he wanted the dam, which would then provide electricity to another group of states, just the way the TVA did that I mentioned earlier. And time to say that was the essence is an understatement. As Franklin Roosevelt said, draw up your plans, give me a timetable. I'm going to hold you to that timetable and I'm going to fine you $3,000 per day past the deadline if you don't meet it. Crow who was no dummy, said, fine, I'll meet your demand with a fine, but I also want a bonus if I happen to finish early. Franklin Roosevelt said, you're on. <laughs> and let's see how that plays out in just a moment. It was an investment that would cost over a billion dollars in 2012 dollars, but it would employ and put back 42,000 Americans to work. There would be two stages to block that Colorado or to dam up that Colorado River. The first would be to divert the river. And then secondly, to build the dam where the river once ran through. So the first phase, divert that river. To do this, they would need four tunnels, the width of a four-lane highway, and as tall as a five-story building, to allow that diverted water to continue to run around the workspace. Those tunnels collectively would be passing through over 1.5 million gallons of water per second. As the dam was being built, it looked as though it was going to be ahead of schedule until Frank Crow received the bad news that at the rate that the concrete was cooling, the dam would not be ready to use until the year 2055. That's right, 2055. From the date they were working, that was 125 years later. Let's just say that Frank Crow would owe Franklin Roosevelt a heck of a dollar amount in fines with, the, with this problem that Frank Crow did not anticipate. If any of you have ever had the opportunity to have concrete poured on your property, as I've had twice, both times putting in a driveway, the second time when my kids were just beyond the uh, toddler years, 
I brought them out after the concrete was poured and the men all drove away as the concrete would need to set for roughly a week. And I showed them and had them put their hands over it and they were amazed at how much heat and humidity was coming up from the concrete as it sat. And even though we could walk on it with our feet, that's because the very surface had set down below, it would take many more days for that concrete to set. And mind you, the driveway, no more than three to four inches thick. This is a dam that, again, was using over 6.6 .6 million tons of concrete. Frank Crow looked from the top of that dam down and realized that he was stuck unless he could somehow figure out how to cool this dam as quickly as possible. And that's when he looked to his left and he looked to his right and he drew up the plans and the men got to work as they started to drive massive pipes through the setting concrete and eventually started rerouting the Colorado, the cold river water through those pipes. And the concrete started to truly begin to cool at a rate faster than anybody had witnessed. Mind you, the, the, the uh, heat was still being generated out of there. And at one point it was estimated that the heat that was being released from that dam was enough to make a half a million loaves of bread every day for three years. But Franklin Roosevelt's time was ticking, holding Frank Crow's feet to the fire to get that dam completed. And sure enough it was, on September 30th, 1935, a, four, four, a full four months ahead of schedule, and to the tune of a small bonus of $4 million in 2012 dollars, as Frank Crow had demanded from Roosevelt, because Roosevelt demanded a fine if Crow exceeded the date of completion. Today, that Hoover Dam, which of course is still being used, provides electricity for areas from Arizona to Los Angeles, all the way to Las Vegas and everywhere in between, creating enough electricity to generate what is now considered the biggest flashlight in the world on top of the tourist attraction in Las Vegas known as the Pyramid, which is 315,000 watts of power that cost over $60 an hour just to operate. At 10 miles up, one has enough light to read a newspaper to the point that it is still considered an aviation aid for planes cruising in an altitude all the way to Las Vegas. So you might want to Google that as well, the giant pyramid of Las Vegas at night. Take a look at those pictures and it is awe-inspiring. Las Vegas, an area that had no more than 5,000 residents in 1930, now estimates that there's more than 37 million tourists per year in the 21st century. So this is just, again, one massive example of the three that I just mentioned of how important that public works was for the Roosevelt administration. It was putting people, Americans, back to work. It was bringing electricity to areas what will eventually be channeled from there to individual homes, which would eventually, again, create demand for future electronic appliances and different gadgets. But money was still needed desperately, not only at the federal level, but also the state level. 
state governors started to put pressure on Franklin Roosevelt to do the unthinkable, to do what had never been done in American history up to that point, and that would be to repeal a constitutional amendment. And that constitutional amendment that prohibited the manufacture and purchase of alcohol in the United States of America, after being in effect for 13 years, 10 months, and 18 days, prohibition officially ended at 5.32 p.m. December 5th, 1933. Franklin Roosevelt wasn't even in office a full nine months before he had to yank prohibition. If any of my listeners want to pause here and take a wild guess, what were state governors so in demand of? You got it. Sales tax. Let's face it, listeners, alcohol sells. It always has, and chances are it always will. And if Americans are going to buy alcohol, regardless of how desperate and destitute they might be, then state governments needed that desperate sales tax revenue. And, of course, they got it. So all of these different aspects that I just discussed is what made Franklin Roosevelt so popular that he would win in another landslide election in 1936. But please know, too, and I am admittedly, I get away from the average American history textbook, but I also want to shed light on somebody that oftentimes now is not only overlooked, it's barely mentioned. And when I say it, it's really a human being, and it's not a man. It's a woman, and that is none other than, yes, to a certain extent, his estranged wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt was so essential to Franklin Roosevelt's success because she was his eyes, she was his ears. Because of that wheelchair that Franklin Roosevelt had been in since 1921, He largely couldn't leave the White House easily. But when he received letters about poor working conditions in America's mines, poor working conditions in corporate America throughout the country, Franklin Roosevelt largely had no way to confirm that or to find out just how bad things were. That's where Eleanor Roosevelt toured the country for many years, not only writing back to her husband, but eventually writing a newspaper column to put pressure on corporate America to elevate America's working standards for America's poor and middle classes. That said, please note that when she arrived at coal mines and she would go into the administrative offices and they would greet her and attempt to wine and dine her by having her sit down and they would describe what it was like in the mines, Eleanor Roosevelt would have none of it. She wanted to see for herself what those mines were like. And most of the time, very astounded coal mine and nickel mine owners would gasp at the thought that she actually wanted to take those elevators down to the tunnels to see for herself. And she did it time and time again. She also, however, again, knew because, again, of their estranged relationship when Franklin Roosevelt was found corresponding with the childhood sweetheart, Eleanor Roosevelt, had so much disdain for Lucy Mercer Rutherford Baines, who was, again, a, a you might say an emotional mistress, but their letters that Franklin Roosevelt wrote to 
to wrote to Lucy was nothing like he had ever written to his own wife. It would be, it was considered to be from that point forward, the last time that Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt even slept in the same bed, much less in the same bedroom. However, she was also doing this for the good of the country to see as much as she could with her own eyes and ears. At the same time, she also defended her husband ruthlessly. They might have an estranged marriage, but you better not talk down about the president with things that can't be supported with proof unless you want to hear the first lady's wrath. However, she was also not a fan of a man by the name of Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister of Great Britain, who was committing to fight Adolf Hitler as he was getting stronger and stronger in power in the Nazi German state. When Churchill came to Washington, D.C., Eleanor could not deny that Franklin Roosevelt's demeanor just skyrocketed. He smiled more often at the thought of Churchill coming. They were almost, if you will, like two male soulmates. They talked about their childhood. They talked about their teenage years, their, their, even their love life. They were, Franklin Roosevelt was like a kid on Christmas morning on the days when Frank, when Churchill was arriving at the White House. And of course, Roosevelt insisted that Churchill stay at the White House as well so they could talk throughout the afternoon into the wee hours of the morning. And as the Great Depression wore on and a looming Second World War II, Second World War War, Second World War, excuse me, seemed in the offing, the more those conversations needed to take place. However, Eleanor Roosevelt also noticed something that after about four, five, six days, when Churchill was at the White House and staying there, that Franklin Roosevelt started getting up later in the morning. He was starting to nod off at meetings, needing to take a nap during the day, had bags under his eyes. And Eleanor Roosevelt couldn't figure out what was going on that Franklin Roosevelt, that her husband, literally couldn't stay awake during the day during the visits of Winston Churchill. Well, one particular visit, when Winston Churchill arrived, Eleanor Roosevelt got up about 2.30 in the morning, and she had the experience of a lifetime, as well as everybody that would be involved with this incident. And what was this incident? Well, I didn't get that far in the textbook, but that's what we'll begin with in our next podcast on the Great Depression, which will bring that one to an end. Thanks for listening.